Today, I want to talk about revival um, from the context of Jesus' word to the seven churches. Specifically, we're going to look at the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And and I want us to consider the theme of what it means to revive our love. To revive our love. There is a series... Oh my gosh, I have a new prescription and it helps me see you. But the moment I look at words, I have to get readers now. You know, you know I turned 50 in, uh, in, in May and it's, it's happening. Like I'm legitimately middle-aged and it's really upsetting to me. Um, I, I just, I woke up today and I was like, I feel so young. And I looked in the mirror, I'm like, who is that old man? <laughs> uh, I am really losing my eyesight, though. It's kind of terrifying. Um, I want to consider a few verses that I think are really important to, to establish um, Jesus' word to the church of Ephesus. And by the way, the words that Jesus speaks in the book of Revelation to the seven churches, the seven churches are the church, is the church, the big C church of all ages. Uh, and each letter speaks to different facets of the church. And the church... Is, is not a monolithic reality. There are many facets to the church. There are many temperaments. There are many denominations. But there is an umbrella of orthodoxy. Those that have held tenaciously uh, what I call creedal Christianity that have held to the supremacy of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, the God-man, that hold to the centrality of the cross, that hold to the, the authority of Scripture, the hold to the belief that the church is God's ordained vessel by which He brings His redemptive message into the world. There are things that, that have defined historic Christianity um, for, the, for over 2,000 years. Um, and there are also problems that have defined Christianity for over 2,000 years. And there is no problem that, that there's nothing new under the sun. There's just new ways of, of there's new ways in which the same old problem, sin, manifests itself and we do live in a unique age and each age has its own problems and it's silly for us to wish that we could go back to those golden days because there the, the, every age has its own issues but one thing i love about revelation i did a series through the seven churches in like the first six months of door of hope and i realized it's a really bleak seven week sermon series like there's only like <laughs> a couple churches that he has anything good to say to and you're like this is a big downer um, but I think it's actually a crucial message for us today and I want to just begin by establishing the supremacy of love which has always been the central thrust of door of hope grace God's one way love toward us the supremacy of love and the importance of love uh, as the fulfillment of the law look listen what it, what the prophet Hosea says in, in chapter 6, verse 6, For I desire steadfast love and sacrifice, or I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God's condemnation of Israel is that they had given up the lawgiver for the law. They had lost the fact that God had established the law to create parameters by which they could enter into intimate knowledge with Him. And that intimacy was, was, was departed from 
and what they had was the form without the relationship. It was the, it was the, it's the essence of religion. And they came under condemnation. And, and notice, he's like, you keep sacrificing to me, but you, but you, don't, you don't love me. You don't, you don't have love and mercy for each other. It's a terrifying, it's a terrifying word. Jesus, in Matthew 24, the great Olivet Discourse, he actually speaks of that time, and I would argue that the end of the age began the moment the incarnation happened. With God's entrance into his own creation put into motion the end of the age. But the end of the age does have an end. And we are moving toward that end, and we are closer now than we've ever been before. And I would argue that we live in an apocalyptic age. And I think that it is right for the church in every age to believe that this is that 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 Jesus is coming back. It's one of the central tenets of the Christian faith. Not only our resurrection, but the promise that Christ will come back and establish his kingdom forever, that sin will be done put away with forever, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that that promise is central to our understanding of the gospel but we also need to understand that before that promise comes before that eternal peace happens there is going to be great tribulation and i don't think tribulation is just a metaphor for the difficulties throughout the ages i think that there is a there is a snowballing effect to tribulation that will culminate in a massive departure from the faith and i think that we're seeing elements of that right now personally it is my deep conviction that we will see the return of Christ in our lifetime. And if you think, well, everyone said that, that's because everyone's expected to believe that, to live with that kind of expectancy. I would say if you struggle with even the idea of that, like you have doubts about that, or you're like, I don't think it's gonna happen in my lifetime, I think that, that I, I would say that I'm siding more with scripture then, because there is an expectancy that Jesus would return uh, even in that first generation of believers after the birth of the church. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, speaking of the time before his return. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most, some translations say of many, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. It's a terrifying, it's a terrifying passage. The many will turn away from their faith. The love of many will grow cold. You notice in Second uh, Timothy, it says the same thing in chapter 3. In the last days, men will be lovers of themselves, proud and boastful, disobedient to parents. And I think that we, we see the, we are at the pinnacle of of self-expression, the rise of the psychological self, they, where my interior desires and motivations um, is, uh, demands acknowledgement from those around me, but my interior desires and motivations are also supreme to anything else, and anything that threatens it um, must be put down. And this is why we live in such an intense victimization um, culture. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of man and angels, but do not have love, 
I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I am nothing. What is Paul saying to the church? He's speaking to the Corinthian church which would become very proud in its spiritual gifts, in its, in its standing as kind of the authority on behalf of Jesus. And yet Paul says, listen, you guys have gotten carnal. You're, 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 you become arrogant in your, in your Christianity. But, but the biggest condemnation is that you've forgotten what it means to be a people that are saved by grace because you aren't reflecting grace. You aren't living from a place of love. And it doesn't matter if you do everything that the Scripture commands you to do. If you don't have love, you're not doing anything. You're not saying anything. You're not achieving anything. You're actually living in accordance to an illusion. It's, it's Karl Barth's Das Nachtig. It's the nothingness. It literally amounts to nothing. This is the realm of Satan. Is that Satan does not have his ground of being in God because he is a liar from the foundation of the world. Therefore, he is in many ways personal or active nothingness. And I'm not saying he's, he's not no one. I believe in a real devil and a real dominion of darkness. Um, but I'm saying that he does not have the ground of being as his source of being because he is not, there is no darkness in God. He, is, uh, he, he functions under the parameters of God's sovereignty, but he himself is in a way an illusion. But that's what we are when we choose not to live in light of the love of Christ. We are choosing to be something that essentially doesn't exist. Um, and that's a terrifying possibility. So with that positive and encouraging opening, let's look at Revelation, which only gets better. All right. I want to begin with the proclamation. Uh, you remember, John is on the island of Patmos and he is, he is given a vision, a vision of things to come. And Revelation is a wildly debated book, and there are many views. Uh, I would say that, that eschatology uh, is not something we should be dividing over as Christians as long as we hold one central belief that Jesus is coming back and that He will put right what is wrong. The, the return of Christ is the essential belief. But, you know, there's, there's all these different... There's, there's preterists, those that believe that all prophecy in Scripture have already, has already been fulfilled. It was fulfilled in, in, uh, in AD 70. Um, I don't think they say AD anymore, by the way. Um, which is a silly thing. Isn't it fascinating that our entire human calendar, even our calendar, is defined by Jesus. There's before Jesus and there's after Jesus. Um, which, tell, which shows the incredible significance and influence that Christianity has had on the world. I would argue that the Western world owes its existence, even its animosity toward the Gospel. It should give a big thank you to the Gospel because it wouldn't exist without it. <laughs> um, which is actually a historical fact. Um, even though people would like to claim differently. 
here's, the, here's this reality. John, a vision, the end things. And, and the first vision God gives to him is he sees Jesus. He sees him as the exalted Savior. No longer is he the humble servant, but now he is the exalted Lord. And the vision that John sees of Jesus actually in chapter 1, if you try to draw what he describes, is quite terrifying. Um, and it speaks of just beauty and majesty and total authority. You know, it says that there will be a day when every knee shall bow to Jesus as Lord. And his full glory and lordship is seen in, on display in this vision. But then there is these words that Jesus gives to very real churches in the day of John. And the, but they also, there is, a, there is a reality in which Scripture is being fulfilled uh, those churches existed. There, these were real words to those churches and the problems in those churches, but they also are archetypal for the church always. And so we don't need to get hung up on that. Well, we're not Ephesus. No, we aren't. But the problems, there's nothing new under the sun, and the problems remain the same. It's just a new age, maybe a little bit different context, but the problems are the same. And so this is the first word to the first church that Jesus speaks. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among, among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, whatever he means by to the, to, uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, I don't know. And there's lots of debate on you know, whether churches have a particular guardian. That's not what matters. What's being stated here is a proclamation. And that proclamation is something that is very profound. Notice, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars represent the church. And, it, and, it, and he says he holds them in his hand. In other words, for those that hold to the idea that you can love Jesus and reject his church, are fooling themselves the church matters no matter how dysfunctional the church is the church matters I also want you to understand that Jesus is not speaking to individuals here our individualistic age and our self-importance we turn these passages into Jesus is it's about me and Jesus this is about Jesus and his church and Jesus is speaking to the church. And here, I love this picture. It's a proclamation. And essentially, all Jesus is saying to his church is, I have you and I am with you. I have you and I am with you, church. I hold you in my hand and I walk amongst you. In other words, I am Lord <laughs> over my church and I am actually present. This is one of the, the central tenets of the Christian faith, is that we are His possession. In the modern age, the belief is, is that the individual is free from any, any authority. They, we claim this right of total autonomy and that, and that we will not allow anyone to define for us who we are or what we shall be. And I think this is deeply problematic on multiple levels because we will always make the worst masters that we ever experience. Man 
in control of his own life is actually out of control. We don't function like man is God intended man to be, and I'm using man in a very general term. Uh, we function like maniacs. We function actually below the animal kingdom because humanity is the only part of creation, uh, a part of the seen physical creation. There's a spiritual reality that's fallen, but the seen physical world that is actually in open rebellion against its creator. And I think it's important for us to understand that here, as Christians, one of the most significant things for us, if we're going to be a church that actually lives out the reality of Christ's Lordship, then we have to acknowledge that everything we are, everything we have, everything we do, it, is, it belongs to Him and is under His authority. This is why the hardest thing you will ever do as a Christian is believe. Because belief is not believing that Jesus exists. Belief is a surrender of your life to His. What's Karl Barth's definition of, of faith? Faith is allowing Christ to be in me, through me, and for me what I cannot be for myself. So it's an acceptance of our own impotence as well as an acceptance of His power. It's a surrender of my will that I might receive His will. And surrender, this is why Christianity, one of the primary reasons Christianity is so scoffed at by the world. Because at least religion gives us the, attempt, gives us the ability to prove ourselves. Even if, we're proving our, even if the proving of ourselves is an illusion to one another, it, it, religion is wonderful because it allows us to show that I'm more arrived than you. This is why I distrust pastors that present themselves to their people as gurus who, have, who are just more spiritually along. Yes, I may have walked with Jesus longer and there's a reason why someone is placed into a position of leadership, but that leader under the, under the realm of the lordship of Jesus is, should be not a celebrity, <laughs> but a servant. And one of the ways that we lead is by actually acknowledging our own brokenness and frailty, and yet at, in, in spite of that, where else shall we go, Lord, for you alone hold the words of life? I think something happened since the 18th century that slowly caused the church not to become, uh, not to become more of a pillar of truth in the world, but became more of a reflecting, a, a, a cheap reflection of the world. It's not that we're making the world more like us, it's just that we've become more like the world. And I think that that's a problem. And, I've, and I've, been, I've been deeply convicted of that in my own life. I see it. We can see it play out in our lives personally, but when there is a collective reality of personal failure, it, it's going to manifest in the church's ability to show the world that we belong to Jesus. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, The, sh the shepherd of the church of God is Jesus, which he purchased, um, or excuse me, uh, Acts 20, verse 28, Paul is telling the, the elders of Ephesus, he says, shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. 
We've been purchased with the blood of Christ. We're his possession. You belong to me, essentially is what Jesus is saying, and I will share you with no other. It's the language of, of, of marriage. The church is the bride of Christ. This is why it's a dangerous thing to be hostile toward the church. I love the church. I also recognize its blemishes and its brokenness. And I know that it's broken because I'm a part of it. <laughs> I know it because of my own brokenness. And I know that, there, that my experience is maybe uniquely mine, but it, at the same time, it's the universal experience. And so we all play into the brokenness of the church, but we also all play into the power and the beauty of the church. And our power actually is in being able to admit our weakness and casting ourselves in total surrender upon Him as Lord. Just like in marriage, when I said yes, to Darcy, I was saying no to every other woman. And when we said yes to Jesus, what we are saying is no to, there will be no other God. There is no other God. There is no God behind the back of Jesus. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. God is a community within Himself. The whole reason we long for relationship is because relationship is at the core of the very being of God. And this is the fact, is that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are basically, it is a marriage <laughs> by which we are saying, I will not allow anything else to define my life but you. You are the one, Jesus. And I love that Jesus proclaims His own faithfulness to us, His own commitment to us. This is the proclamation. And then He moves in, to, He commends the church. And this is, this is worth noting. He essentially says, thank you for your diligence, but <laughs> there is unfortunately a but in there. Um, I'm such an 11-year-old boy. I just, I just immediately started snickering just because I said but. <laughs> Great. Uh, just, just boys will be boys. Uh, verses 2 through 3. I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance. I don't believe Jesus is being sarcastic here. I think he's acknowledging a reality. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. Good for you. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So this church is a zealous church they are serious about their doctrine they are serious about not being tainted by the world and here's the thing door of hope you know i'm not going to say that door of hope has ever been a church that's like landed on the legalistic side of life i would say that in portland and being a church that historically is young there is there has definitely been a far more prevalent libertine spirit uh, but i will say this that as our churches become multi-generational and as there is a hunger for a real awakening the danger of that awakening is that zealousness can leave love in the dust <laughs> i know it i've done it where our desire to do what is right 
can sometimes come at the expense of the supreme call upon the believer's life. But, but I think before we get into that, let's consider the, the good. Because if you still are a libertine Christian, I think it's worth noting that Jesus commends, because he has a lot of harsh words to say to the libertine spirit. Like, that's the thing. All seven churches are, represents the universal church at all times. There's, there's the faithful church, there's the persevering church, but then there's like several churches that got sexual immorality running amok. And man, we live in a hyper-sexualized society. So if you have that libertine spirit, notice here there's an acknowledgement of hard work. I think we forget that. We, like, you know how, how, uh, how popular it is to talk about the need for rest and the importance of of um, you know, I, I hear like all this conversation. We we should have we should just have you know three day work weeks so we could spend more time expressing ourselves. Uh, I I'm reading this book in, uh, by this guy Carl Truman and he's he made this statement. He's like, my grandfather died in 1994. He worked he worked at a steel mill his entire life. My grandfather also worked at a steel mill. His grandfather worked in Birmingham in a steel mill for his entire life. He goes, if I was to ask my grandfather what if he found satisfaction in his job, I'm not sure he would even have known how to answer that question. That actually would be a meaningless question for that generation. My grandfather, um, Pete, uh, who's 90 years old, he is so baffled by this, con he worked at Weyerhaeuser his whole life. He was in the Navy, and then he worked at Weyerhaeuser his whole life. And for, for them, it's like the meaning, the value in the hard work was not is this work enjoyable? The meaning was, is it actually providing for the people I love? Am I doing what I need to do to contribute to the things that really matter, which is not myself, but others? But we live in an age where personal satisfaction, if, I, if someone asks me if I'm satisfied with my job, like, or what I think about my job, I, I will. It's, I, am, I am the product of a psychological age. I'm like, oh, it's awesome. I get, a, I get to do this, and I get to do this, and I, like, I get to read. I'm paid to read. That's amazing. And I get to make music. And I remember being so bitter when I was a house painter. Like, it, but I was providing for my family. I was allowing my wife to be home with our brand new baby boy. And up to that point, she had been, I mean, she was like a sugar mama when I met her. She was responsible, and I was just like Peter Pan. Uh, and she was like, She'd come home from work and I'd still be sleeping at like three in the afternoon. Then I'd go to practice till like one in the morning. I'm like, it's gonna happen, I'm gonna be a rock star. And then she's like, yeah, I don't think so. And soon I'm not gonna be here. And then it was like, dang. Um, and I got saved. And then there was this conviction that my life was driven, Darcy was coming second to my dreams. And that's not, that's not any way that a wife should have to live. Uh, and, and this is a question, it's so weird how it takes you till like the middle of your life to realize that so many of the things that we chased are things that don't stinking matter. And the things that matter the most are the things that like by the time you realize that they matter, they're like gone. Like how much time I spent during my kid's life chasing my dreams and then when I realized that the, many of those things didn't really matter, my son's moving away to New York City. And I'm like, not that I didn't 
enjoy him and love him and 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 but I could I feel like I could have enjoyed him more I isn't that interesting the ways that that the heartbreak that comes when we realize how much our life is about us um, all of the problems that I have had in my marriage throughout our marriage is because of the problem of, of, of not seeing the value in making other people's happiness more important than my own. I confess that uh, with great shame, but I also recognize I'm a product of the society which you are a product of as well. Some of you who are actually old enough to, to be also baffled by this current climate that we live in. It's interesting. I mean, I remember early days, Dorf, you know how many, I remember meeting with a guy who just finished his architecture degree. He, his parents paid for him to go through, and he like, was in school for six years, and then he's like, I just don't think I want to be an architect. It doesn't make me happy. And I'm like, what are you going to do? And he's like, I'm going to, he goes, I think I'm going to be a woodworker. And I was like, how do your parents feel about that? And they're like, he's like, he's like, I don't know. They just want me to be happy. I mean, we create it, we are it, and now look where we are. Hard work. Work is something that is essential <laughs> to existence. Work was something that was given to our first parents in the garden before sin entered the world. And work is something that we will have, actually, I believe, in the kingdom to come. Because work is a gift. Work is a gift. It's our ability to be partners with God. It is the call of God upon man to subdue the earth. Not destroy the earth. <laughs> Subduing for us in a fallen state means destroy. Um, but subduing in an unfallen state means being a caretaker, like a gardener. <laughs> and there is a beauty in work. My, my wife and my kids have... Um, my kids got a very, very hard work ethic from, uh, from Darcy. And I think any hard work ethic I've received, I've also gotten from my wife. Uh, there is a power uh, in working hard. Um, I, th this idea that they labored for the kingdom. They were diligent hard workers. They witnessed. They met the needs of the poor, the orphan, and the widow. They were, they were known for, for their proclamation as well as their service. They were known for being a people of word and deed. They, not only were they hard workers, but they were also patient. Notice their, their patience, their perseverance, he says. They had a stick-to-itiveness about them. And that's something that we really struggle with today. We, the best aspect of the book that we've been reading by Eugene Peterson and his staff, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, is that very concept of what does it mean to have a stick-to-itiveness, to continue to push in, where there's a point where you're like, I, there's nowhere else to go, Jesus. I am choosing to be with you. Everything is disposable in our current culture. Marriage is disposable. Kids are disposable. Everything, is, everything can be given up on in our society if it is a personal inconvenience. Isn't that fascinating? And heartbreaking. This is why TikTok is so popular is because, it, and it feeds into the, I mean, it, I could not help, I got sucked into it for like an hour. I mean, it was like an, a good, it might have been two hours. And I was just, I was dumbfounded. I just kept thinking, I am living in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. This is, this is 
everything he wrote about in the 1920s. Because in Brave New World, you weren't allowed to marry. You're, just, you're, just, you're supposed to have sex with anybody and everybody you want. And you're given, you're given like what was a precursor before it was even created, essentially ecstasy, um, so that you know, the pleasure was m magnified. And the only films that they were, they were allowed to watch were exciting, brainless action moments in films. And the whole thing was, the whole idea that Huxley had, the opposite of Orwell, is that the way that society will control us, the best way to control society is through pleasure. Pleasure without meaning, pleasure without depth. And I was like, seriously, I think I said it last week, like, do we really want to watch John and Renee in Ohio dance to the notorious B.I.G. hypnotize? Along with a million, like, it was like, like middle-aged people doing a dance, and then it's just like, and then kids doing the dance, and then another person, then there's like a monkey doing the dance, and like, and then I'm like, what is happening? And it's like, and then immediately I'm like, but dang, that song is good. It is good. And it's, but it's a, it's like a, it's a mind-numbing experiment in, in like how stupid can we make ourselves? And some of you are like, I like TikTok, and I'm like, I... Patience requires a stick to -itiveness. I just started getting mad. This is why we need love. <laughs> As your pastor, it's the one thing I say, just get rid of it. Erase it. Don't look at it. Now I'm going to look at it today. I know it. <laughs> they were sturdy, dependent believers. Romans 12, 12. They were patient in tribulation. They had sound doctrine. This is something that often is lacking in our, in our age. Are we a biblically literate people? How many of you, if I was to ask people to raise their hands, I don't want you to raise your hands because I'm not interested in shaming anyone. But if I was to ask how many of you have read through the Bible even once, how many of you would not be able to raise your hand? And my guess, statistically, is it would be a very, very large portion. Or if you have read it once, and maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. How many of you have gone years without reading it through again? Um, these people were serious about their doctrine. They were men and women of the Word. They were diligent and rightfully dividing the truth. They understood that doctrine mattered. Their faith was well-defined and it was defended. They were not swayed by religious fads. These are good things. They're really good things. They had purity in conduct, we're told. And he says, you hate the Nicolaitans, which we'll see in a second. You, you hate the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were thought to be a heretical group that tried marrying Christianity with the sexual immorality of the Roman Empire. And, and there's a lot of that kind of weird stuff. I mean, that was one of the things Christians were accused of, was drinking blood and, you know, orgies. <laughs> and, but there were actually Christians that fell into those trappings. You know, there were multiple cults that was birthed during the Jesus movement that were marked by, by crazy... Uh, I mean, think of Jim Jones. That's an extreme example. But there, are, there were many... The, there was a famous uh, organization. We used to have a guy that, that got saved into it. And it was, he goes, I met Jesus in this group, but it was a cult called The Way. And the one thing that where it just like strayed from like orthodoxy was they encouraged they encouraged like polyamorous relationships. 
which is just so baffling to me. But it was like, we want to keep a little bit of our hippie. It's kind of like the, it's kind of like the, I think that we do the same thing. Maybe not, we may not be polyamorous, but there's this idea of like, I love Jesus, but I'm not willing to give up that. Like, I love Jesus, but I'm still going to smoke my weed. And I'm still going to get drunk. And I'm still going to sleep around. But I love him. And then there's other people who are like, I don't do any of those things. But I don't love him. <laughs> and I don't love people. Neither is the right answer. I, I want to just ask you guys, when you look at that list of hard work, patience, sound doctrine, purity, and conduct, would you say that defines the outworking of your understanding of the gospel? These are, these are people that were living within the parameters of what God has established as healthy. They hated what was evil. They loved what was good. But here's the problem when we drift from the gospel. Is you have to ask the question, is your faith ideology or is it relationship it literally comes down to a question as simple as that can you honestly say that your christianity is defined by a relationship with the living christ remember he began by saying i hold you church in my hand and i walk amongst you how does god do that how does jesus do that he says i will send another helper to you the spirit of truth Jesus said, when two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Do you come, church, expectant to meet with the living God? Or do you come to learn a few more rules to make yourself feel okay? To silence the nagging voice of conscience? Or do you not try at all? The, get, the, the goal should not be not trying and the goal shouldn't be trying without love. What we need to ask ourselves is, is how, how close am I, Jesus, to allowing my Christianity to be defined by my own effort rather than by your finished work? Isn't that an important question? Jesus, am I motivated by your finished work or am I trying to prove to you my worth? My effort is an attempt to prove my worth when you already said you're not worthy but I love you still and that's why I died for you everything that needs to be done has already been done in Christ the great conclusion to the Heidelberg disputation this is the this is the the, the defining reality of the Reformation is that the gospel is about God's movement toward a sinful humanity that is incapable of saving themselves but how quickly we move back to religion loyalty without love is religion without relationship it's a problem and i just want to say that as a church at 14 years old we're going to be 14 years old in may um, and as we're there's a zealousness to be to to push into righteousness let not the righteousness come at the expense of relationship because it's not really righteousness then Right living without a personal Christ is just legalism and stoicism. And stoics never have fun. It's a fact. They don't smile. No stoic in the history of the world has ever smiled. That's a hyperbolic statement that actually cannot be claimed. Um, 
but you can't disprove it either if they're dead. So what does he go on to say? Here's the accusation. Yet, good job, but I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. What is the supreme command of Scripture? Luke chapter 10, Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. First commandment, and the second is like it. Love God, and I love that. It's very holistic. All of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. The whole person must be given to a love of God. And that love is not possible unless God births within us the capacity to love Him. This is why we love Him only because He first loved us. This is why the central concern of the church must not be social the, the, fixes of so, the fixing of social woes because the only thing that will fix the social woes of the world is regeneration. This is why witness must maintain its central importance. We will care for the broken. We will care for the... We will go out and feed and we will go out and clothe. But our central and supreme calling upon our lives is to witness to the reality of Jesus because it doesn't matter if we clothe someone, if we withhold from them the fact that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. This is why the preaching of the Word takes up the most time in the church. Not because the preacher is of importance, but because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I sit within the tradition of the Reformation on this that the preaching of the Word is of utmost importance because the Word of God is the thing that transforms the life because it lifts up Jesus that we might be born again. And if you're not born again, no amount of effort will help you. You must be born again. And that's not some cheesy Christianese statement that's from the lips of Jesus. There is a new birth. And Jesus is the firstborn over that new humanity. And He says, I will remove your heart of stone in Ezekiel and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. And the question is, we must ask ourselves is, have I been born again? Because we cannot love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength unless we have been born again. Because we need the love of God to love God and love others. Because the love of God is not natural to the human heart. It is a foreign flower planted in the soil of the sinful heart. I notice what he says. You've forsaken the love you had at first. He is actually speaking to a people that have been born again. And this shows us the danger and the difficulty of liberation. Jesus says, whoever the Son of Man sets free shall be free. It is the one who is born again that actually finds themselves free. But freedom creates responsibility. And the more freedom we have, the greater the possibility of making an absolute disaster of that freedom becomes possible. This is why I completely reject the concept of meticulous providence, which is, and I have many brothers, 
mainly brothers, <laughs> that, that, that hold to that view of God, which is everything that happens has been ordained in the secret decrees of God. Um, don't make God responsible for your stupid decisions. What a terrible thing. Like, I was a terrible... I had an affair. That's because that's how God... He wired me to do it. That's why I'm okay. Because He made me do it. We are not robots. There is a mystery between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And God can be sovereign without being responsible for everything that happens. Now, it's true that nothing happens without Him knowing it or without Him permitting it but permissiveness and actual I designed you to do it are very different things like a parent we give our kids as they grow older a certain amount of freedom so that they can mature and the more freedom we give them the more likely they're going to make mistakes they're going to make bad decisions but that's how they grow in wisdom that's how often wisdom is learned through error this is why I love that great speech by Teddy Roosevelt, the man in the arena, that life is a risk. And you don't, like, it's a stupid thing for us to be like, I can't, I'm not going to do it because I'm going to fail at it. Like, no, you know that you are a failure and then move out in love. That's, that's what I do. I'm like, Josh, you suck. I know, Lord, thank you for loving me anyway. You know, just move out in love. It's, it's the, the, the reality is that our liberty creates the possibility of us misusing our liberty. This is the very thing that Paul warned us against in Galatians. He says, he goes, for freedom's sake you have been set free. Do not use your freedom to serve the flesh. He wouldn't say that unless it was a possibility. Why are you trying to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the Spirit? And this is why it's so important for us. To, this is what, what is meant by that statement, I fell out of love. I was in love with you, but I don't love you any longer. Love seems to be... There's lots of conversations around what is and is not fluid in our modern age. Love seems to be... Feelings seem to be very fluid. And love, agape love, is more than feeling. It is commitment. This is why marriage, the, it's covenantal. My covenant to Darcy means that every day I am responsible to repeat the yes of love. And some days I fail at that. I repeat it, but I don't live it. But the covenant creates a safety for me to even fail at it. And that's a powerful thing. But you keep failing at it and you don't do anything to correct it. You can find two people that are tied to a covenant in, in which the covenant is, is holding basically two strangers together. And I think that the, the terrifying possibility as a Christian is that, that and I, I see this in marriage, it's a married couple that they forgot what it was like to be romantically in love. And then they just become partners in the different aspects of human living. And then, they're just, and then they, they don't realize that they're strangers. They don't realize that they're strangers because they forgot that maintaining their own relationship is actually key to fulfilling their partnership. And this is why marriages fall apart. He goes on to say the appeal, and we're going to close here. The appeal is this. Consider. 
consider how far you have fallen. I love this about Jesus. You know, there's this idea that we as Christians, in order to reach people, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta beat them over the head with their sin. Jesus' motivation is love. And His love here calls, confronts them. It's a confronting love. And it's a love that confronts them with what's affecting their ability to love. And so He's not beating them over the head with anything. He's, he's holding up a mirror to the lovelessness as a church community. And He says, you, gotta con- like, you can't be confronted with the, with the holy fire of God's love and not be undone by it. Revivals come are, are marked usually by people being broken over their sin. It's not because God is harsh with them. It's because His love came down and they couldn't handle it. His grace actually is what unhinges them. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. People don't necessarily need a lot of help knowing that they're broken. Uh, what they need to be given is, is what we need to be doing is lifting up Jesus and let His light shine into their brokenness. His kindness will unhinge them faster than anything else. I think the, if you want to know the fastest way to turn someone off from Christ is to, is to, is to yell at them with where it just sounds like you're like, why are you just telling me how much, how much I'm hated? I, when, when in actuality it's like, I already feel that. And now, now you're just make, bringing out animosity in me. The thing that broke me before Jesus was not being told that I was a mess because I knew that. It was being told that God loved me in spite of that and I could not handle it. It's what broke my dad when little Hattie showed him love, love to a stranger she had never, never met before without questioning anything, without making any comment on his brokenness and his, and his smelliness and his cigarettes and his alcoholism. Just, Grandpa, I love you. And my dad could not handle it. It became the mark that turned him toward his conversion four years later. This is the power of the Gospel. And the appeal here is consider how far you've fallen and look what Jesus says. Just repent. Not how could you? He says, you need to understand the distance between you and me right now. And then, he, and then this appeal is this. Remember where you came from. Remember what it was like when you first fell in love with me. Pull out the photo album. Look at those pictures when we were first in love. Remind yourself of what it was like to be in love with me. And then repent. Remember, repent. Repentance is a change of direction. Look how far you've gone. Now turn around and come back to me. Stop being prodigal. Return home. Revival in love is recognize that you've let the love die and now let's resurrect, let me resurrect it. But you've got to come to me. You've got to let me work within you. You've got to surrender to me so that I can do that work. God can rebirth love within us that's grown cold. He can. Remember, repent, and then repeat. I love this. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you don't repent, this is an interesting thing. There is a warning here, and it's a severe warning. And it's not a warning to the individual. 
I want to be reminded that this is a warning to the church. And we see this happen to churches all the time. Churches that are, have dead orthodoxy, in other words, they're scripturally right, but there is just no sense of the Spirit in the place. And he says, if you don't make my love central in your community, I will remove your lampstand and I'm going to put it somewhere else. Nothing's going to stop my mission. Nothing's going to stop me from fulfilling what I'm going to do. But you can't prevent me from fulfilling what I'm going to do, but you can prevent me from fulfilling what I want to do in you, church. Door of hope. Are you a church where people are known for their love? Are you a church? Are we a church that is known for our belief that on our worst day God is crazy about us and more than just something that I say every week? Do you believe that in the depth of your being? And if you believe it, are you then reflecting it and giving that love away? Because our life is not about our happiness. It's about His glory and His redemptive story being played out, which actually does lead to real happiness, real contentment, real joy, real satisfaction, and real meaning. There, this, this idea that the self and the ego and my psychological well-being being the most important thing is a dead-end street that is leaving people destroyed. And they are walking away from their faith because the church is pandering to it. The church has become a place where we're just like self-help gurus. Just telling people how to have better marriages and how to get their best life going now. And we're like, hey, listen, there's easy targets, but it's more subtle than that. Often things under the guise of of, of orthodoxy when in actuality it's nothing more than it's, it's, it might as well be a self-help commercial. It's like books like The Prayer of Jabez. It's, it's, but it's more subtle than that. And it's infiltrated Bible-believing churches. It's infiltrated our church at times. And people have walked away from Door of Hope angry that we haven't pandered to their personal needs that we haven't cared about their personal well-being enough. I mean, I've had people that I don't even know get mad that, you know, I didn't become their best friend. I actually had someone say that to me once. I can't go to church where I can't be close with my pastor. I'm like, man, well, you just made it really awkward if I ever did want to be close to you because I don't really now because um, that's just a lot of pressure. Uh, remember, repent, and repeat. We need to be a community of love. We have to care for each other. That can't be done by just the pastoral team or even with the elders. It has to be done by us together. We remember, we repent, and we repeat. And the invitation and promise is this. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, Listen, love, and live. Don't choose death. Any other option other than love is death. Let us live in the love of Christ. May He revive our love. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You so much for the Gospel of grace. And I pray right now that by Your Holy Spirit, you would guide and direct us into the truth of who you are, that we would be a church that lives in the light of your love, that we would be driven by a desire to see you exalted, 
to see You high and lifted up. And Lord, many of us, our love has grown cold. And You said that You won't even put out a smoldering wick. And some of us feel like there's no flame going. As I said to the men on Friday night, that it only takes a single flame to catch the world on fire. And Lord, we want to be a people that are inflamed, and I just pray that you would ignite our hearts because hearts that are on fire will set other hearts on fire. And we want to be a people that are set on fire with your love. A love that doesn't just intellectually stimulate us, but that actually transforms us from the inside out. And so I just ask right now, if you're here and you just you want the fire of God's love to be a consuming reality in your life, to know that Jesus is with you and for you, the power of the Spirit upon your life, so that you can be a carrier and a witness to that reality, I just want you to stand up where you're at so I can pray for you. Lord Jesus, you see my brothers and sisters here who have stood saying we just want the flame of your love. We want you, Holy Spirit, to burn within us like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Did not our hearts burn within us when he opened up his word to us? Jesus, your word is living when it's applied by the Spirit. And I pray that we would see that you are the Logos. You are the living word. You are the eternal son. Jesus, you are God. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would direct our hearts and minds toward him. And that our hearts would be inflamed by your presence. And we pray for revival. Revive our love for you and for one another, Jesus. We need you. We are lost without you. And I pray this over the church and for those even here that maybe don't even know you at all, that haven't been born again, I pray that they would just cry out, Jesus, save me, forgive me, fill me with your spirit. Accepting, Lord, what you've already done for them. And so, Lord, we come to you today, your people, and we just cry out together as a church, Jesus is Lord. Say that with me, church. Jesus is Lord. Amen.